This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are about two things. What are those two things? Well, relentless curiosity, and we are steadfastly non-ideological. And if there's ever a topic, ladies and gentlemen, that knows no ideological barriers or geographic barriers or any other kind of barriers, it is coronavirus. I really think of this show this week as something for our radio audience, our podcast listeners, and those on CBSN as the closest thing we can do to a public service, because all we're going to do mostly during this episode is talk about what we know, what we need to know, how to react, and how not to overreact, if that's possible, to coronavirus. It is the dominant public health story globally. And it is becoming a fast-moving story in the public health community and every other part of American life. And we have a phenomenal guest to help us walk through our education process. Her name is Dr. Lena Wen. She's an emergency physician, a public health leader. She has written a critically acclaimed book and a companion TED Talk on transparency in medicine, that book, When Doctors Don't Listen. Two million times that's been viewed that TED Talk. In 2019, Dr. Wen was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. I think I came in about $6 on that list, so she's way ahead of me on that. Dr. Wen, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for coming out here in Baltimore. Out here to Charm City, (laughs) the city that reads, city of Baltimore, exactly. Jake, you need to get my mic so I can hear it. She was also the health commissioner for this city for eight years? For four years. Four years, okay. Four years. So that is someone... My Ladies dream and job. Gentlemen. It was wonderful. Right. I loved serving the city. So at the front lines of public health, thinking about planning for and adjusting to situations, maybe not precisely like this, but you thought conceptually about things such as the coronavirus. So also, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something that we did. Some of you already know this. For the first time in this show's history, I posted a video asking for your questions on this topic. And oftentimes when people do that, they're not really serious about it. They say, oh, send us your questions, and they ask one. I'm not doing that. We got a lot of questions in. I'm starting the show with those questions because they were good. We sifted them. We're not asking every single one of them, but we're asking a representative sample for sure, and we're going to go right to it. I'm not burying those or sort of ghettoizing them at the end of the show. Start right from what you asked us. So, Dr. Wynn, from Twitter. Sure. 
Joanne writes, can you get the coronavirus twice? Have it, get well, catch it again. It's a really good question, and I want to preface everything that we're saying today first by emphasizing that coronavirus, this novel coronavirus, COVID-19, is new. New, it's novel. It's novel that's, coronavirus. That's, what, that's what's the deal. It's new. That's right. And so there's a lot that we now are finding out about it, but there's a lot that we still don't know. And everything that I say, I'm going to make clear, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. Excellent. And because I believe that truth, honesty, and transparency are, are so critical. Right. Um, and so what we know about coronavirus is that it's a respiratory illness, that it's something that's transmitted. You can think about it as the cold or the flu, that we're sitting here right. next to each other. If I sneeze or cough and the droplets land on you, mm-hmm. then you could get it. Or if I sneeze and cough into my hand and then shake your hand and then you touch your face. Right. Or touch an elevator button or a door handle or something like that. It can be moved that way. That's right. But when you touch your face, as in yes. if, if you just have it on your hand, it's not going to do anything, but it's the mucous membranes of your nose, your mouth, your eyes that it's transmitted. We also know that about 80% of people who get COVID-19, the new coronavirus, have mild symptoms, and some people may not even know that they have it. And I mentioned all of this to um, to this person's question because what we think, what, what we understand about coronavirus so far about the recovery is that 80% of people will have mild symptoms, don't require hospitalization mm-hmm. or specific medical treatments, and they'll recover, and then they'll be fine. It seems unlikely, based on what we know so, based far, on what we know so far, that they will be reinfected and get it again. Right now, nobody has immunity to coronavirus, but those who get it once may develop immunity to it. But we don't have good evidence of that yet. Right. Okay. Excellent. This is from Chloe Pasquale. What are the criteria for getting tested for coronavirus? How many Americans have been tested for? We're going to leave that question aside because this show will run over this weekend and next week. And whatever number we say about who's been tested is going to be inoperable in a two or three days. So let's focus on the first question. What are the criteria? So the criteria has been changing. Mm-hmm. Initially, so it's, a good it's, a, it's a very good question, and it, it, it will be changing also throughout the next couple of weeks. Again, emphasizing that this is a new virus, constantly evolving situation. And I do want to emphasize, too, about the constantly evolving part. Some people, when they hear about change, they might think, oh, it sounds like chaos. Right. But we should also remember nobody that. nobody knows what's going on. Yeah, but we should we also remember that. We do know what's that, going on. We're just learning. That's right. And that constant reevaluation is a good thing. That constant reevaluation is the bedrock of a good public health response. You expect for people to be nimble and agile and adjust to new evidence. That's what I would want, right? right? That if new evidence comes out, you adjust your plan. Mm -hmm. So initially, when coronavirus looked like it was limited to China, the initial testing criteria that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control Prevention, put out were specific about people who had travel history and had a set of symptoms. Right. And then those criteria got broadened when more countries, not just China, but there were outbreaks that were happening in other countries. Just earlier this week, the White House announced that they are changing the criteria even more so that there are no longer restrictions. And theoretically, one could go to their doctor and get a COVID-19 test. The problem, though, is that at the moment, there aren't nearly enough tests to go around. And so, um, and I also think, frankly, that we don't want the worried well 
to be calling their doctor. Not everybody needs a COVID-19 test just right. because you have the sniffles. And Dr. David Agus, one of our medical contributors on CBS, has said, look, we don't want people going to emergency rooms or doctor's offices if they're worried well, because that's the place where you could be most easily exposed to it. Emergency rooms especially. That's right. So I'm in Yardok. And there's another element, too, which is that emergency rooms are already very crowded, mm-hmm. especially during flu season. There's, there are already long waits, and the last thing that we want is for the worried well to be sitting there taking up resources and somebody with a heart attack or appendicitis or is a trauma victim cannot get good medical care. Right. And so it really is important to listen to your doctor, your local public health official, and only go to the doctor and call your doctor first, but do not go to the ER. The rule of thumb is if you are not going to go to the ER anyway, right? just because there's, a, there's coronavirus, don't go to the ER. Don't go to the ER. All right. This is another question. All these from Twitter from Tom Dixon. How contagious is the coronavirus compared to the quote-unquote normal flu? More, less, same, unknown. Appears to be more based on what we know so far. The infectious rate for the flu is just over one, meaning that one person who has the flu will transmit it to between one to two other people on average. Okay. For coronavirus, that number appears to be higher. Um, they, they range at the moment from two to maybe even as high as five or six. So it looks like it's more contagious. But for comparison, something like measles, which is one of the most infectious illnesses, one person with measles could transmit it to 18 to 20 other people. Right. Okay. So, and I'm going to assume something here, always dangerous, but I think I'm on safe ground here because we don't have immunity, because this is a novel virus. That's why the infection rate is probably numerically slightly higher. That's likely to be true, right? Because we just, nobody has immunity to something like this that's new. Very good. That's the voice of Dr. Lena Wynn. She is our special guest this entire episode, almost all of it, I think. And maybe if it's just a few percentages less than that, will be on other topics, but mostly coronavirus. We're in Baltimore because she's a former health commissioner here in Baltimore. She lives here in Baltimore. And we are at Village Square Cafe, where we came the last time. Always great to be in Baltimore. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two in just a second. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're back in the great city of Baltimore. A big hello to our newest member of The Takeout Radio Network, WBAL in Baltimore. So glad to be on that radio station. Hello, everyone in Baltimore. Back up here because Lena Wynn, our special guest, public health expert and uh, physician of renowned reputation, lives here in Baltimore. So we're taking the show slightly on the road. It's just a slight drive north from Washington, D.C. Again, the topic of this episode principally, coronavirus, fact from fiction, what to do, how to think about it. And we asked for questions through via social media, and they came in, and we're going to go through them. As uh, would be said in my college Latin class, Syriatum. Uh, This is from At Control Issue. 
South Korea, Italy, China, and elsewhere, including the United States, have aging populations, low birth rates with either non-existent or declining immigration. How damaging could this, meaning coronavirus, end up being for areas that are already in population decline? That's kind of a big picture question. Yeah, and, and a really good question. I think that they are referring to the fact that this new coronavirus, COVID-19, seems to disproportionately affect the elderly, as in everybody could be affected, they could get COVID-19, but those who get the most severe illnesses and who have the highest mortality rate are the elderly and those with chronic medical illnesses. And so I think they're projecting, well, basically, if a lot of older people die, how will that affect the country? And it's too soon for us to say. I mean, this is, we're only in month three of the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, it does appear that there are more and more cases occurring around the world. We're on the verge of a pandemic, even if the World Health Organization has not declared it as such. But we just don't know yet the severity and the spread. We don't know whether this is something that's going to be contained in the near future or whether it's going to keep on spreading. And so I think it's too far, too early for us to know. But do keep in mind that those who are the most vulnerable are the, are the elderly and those with underlying medical issues. Related to that, I'm going to call an audible here and go to a question of my own because it's part of what is in the New York Times today, page A13. Let me read the headline to our audience. Incubators of epidemics. That's in quote. Heavy scrutiny on vulnerable nursing homes. Let me read the lead paragraph in this story written by Matt Richtel. Over the weekend, a nightmarish scenario unfolded in a Seattle suburb with the announcement that the coronavirus had struck a nursing home. The outbreak, leaving seven dead and eight others ill through Wednesday morning, exposed the great vulnerability of the nation's nursing homes and assisted living facilities and the 2.5 million Americans who live in them. Respond to that general assessment. He's correct that individuals who live in close quarters are already vulnerable and then you add to it people in nursing homes and long-term care facilities who tend to have several comorbid illnesses, several reasons for why they would have compromised immune systems and they are in one space together. And this is why a pandemic or an outbreak response plan always has to take into account those individuals. And that's why the country is shocked by these headlines of one facility in a Seattle suburb and having so many deaths. Like, what? Well, they're there. They're close proximity and what's being done or not done is having real world effects. That's right. And we know that there is this outbreak cluster now in this particular nursing home near Seattle. In time to come, and I don't mean a lot of time to come, I mean in the days to come, we are going to find other outbreak clusters as we start doing more testing because we have evidence that community transmission is happening, meaning that initially at the beginning of the outbreak, the people who are being diagnosed with COVID-19 were all people with travel history to other areas where there were outbreaks. But now that COVID-19 is found in over 70 countries and other countries are also have, they also have spread within their countries, we know that that kind of spread is happening in, in, in the U.S. And this nursing home is one cluster. There's now a cluster in, in New York. There are clusters being detected around the country. And as testing ramps up, we are going to find more cases. Right. And that's one of the things we don't know, as uh, has been said in other interviews I've watched. We don't know what the numerator is. We don't know the number of those people who have this. So we can't know a lot of other things about mortality rates or other aspects of how to measure this 
particular virus compared to others and compared to our past history. That's right, and that's also why the numbers will keep on changing as we get more information. The World Health Organization said just this week that they're estimating that the mortality rate is about 3.4%. But that number is in flux. First of all, the diagnostics are different um, among different countries. Um, second, the at the beginning of an outbreak, usually the people who present first are the ones who have the more severe illnesses because the others may not even know that they have it. And we right. know that some patients with COVID-19 may have no symptoms at all, so don't know that they have it. That's why that routine surveillance is also going to be so important. But then the other thing, too, is different countries have different healthcare systems. And in the U.S., we are fortunate to have the most advanced healthcare system, although there are many issues with it, including yes. access to affordable care. But it's likely that we will see a lower mortality rate than 3.4% as that denominator gets larger. On this question of mortality rate, Jake, pay attention to my voice here because I want you to play soundbite number five. The President of the United States phoned into Sean Hannity's program on Fox News on Wednesday evening and said this about that World Health Organization projected mortality rate of 3.4%. Well, I think the 3.4% is really a false number. Now, this is just my hunch. and uh, But based on a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this, because a lot of people will have this, and it's very mild. They don't know about the easy cases because the easy cases don't go to the hospital. They don't report to doctors or the hospital in many cases. So I think that that number is very high. I think the number, personally, I would say the number is way under 1%. Evaluate that for our audience. Well, the latest numbers from the World Health Organization are 3.4%. Um, a lot of experts, including myself, do believe that 3.4% is an overestimate and that the number will be lower once we start doing routine surveillance and these other cases, as the president mentioned, um, come up. Um, but I think there's another point, too, which is that at this time of a public health emergency, we really need to be listening to the experts and to focus on the science and the evidence and to base our decisions and our communications on that too. There's so much misinformation about COVID-19 already and the public depends on all of us as public health leaders, as officials, um, as government leaders to tell the truth mm -hmm. based on evidence and that's clear, that's transparent and that's honest. And therefore, hunches should take a backseat to science and facts. Well, it's always best to speak with what we know and to be clear about what is what is the truth as we know it right now and what is something that we just don't know, that we're speculating on. But again, leading with the science and evidence is really critical. More questions from our audience. This is from McKenna Carey. What actions should our federal government have taken six or more weeks ago? And if it had implemented these actions, would a considerable number of Americans either been had their lives saved or been less affected by this COVID-19? You know, I actually think that the federal government, on balance, has been doing a good job with fighting COVID-19. And I know that a lot of people may not agree with me, but here's the reason. This is a new disease, and we cannot evaluate with, a, with hindsight, because hindsight is always 2020. You can always look back and say, oh, they should have done this differently and that and that. But we have to look at how our federal leaders and just in general public health leaders, they had to make extremely difficult, time-sensitive decisions under extreme pressure. And 
as long as they were making the best decision that they could with the best available evidence at that time. What were some That's of the good what we decisions be made? On. So initially, the decision to quarantine, the travel restrictions that were implemented, they were there was a lot of criticism about them at the time, saying that oh they were too aggressive. But actually, those initial aggressive measures bought us weeks of time. They bought us weeks to prepare. They bought us weeks also to get more information. And the president talks about that with some frequency, so he's not wrong about that. I, I'm I'm glad that they were that they were that they did implement what seemed at the time to be heavy-handed measures. I mean, this was the first quarantine that was implemented. By the U.S. in over 50 years, but that turned out to be the right decision. Now there were some things that should have been done better. So the、um, the lack of testing that we have is a major misstep. I mean, And I'm gonna, I want you to hold that thought because I want to pick up on that on the other side of this segment. I'm Major Garrett. We are at the Village Square Cafe. That's right. Thank you. In Baltimore, Lena Wynn is our special guest. Back for segment three and our continuing relentless conversation, learning as 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 we go every step of the way about coronavirus. Stay tuned. From CBS News, this is the Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to Baltimore. Welcome back to the Village Square Cafe. Dr. Lena Wynn is our special guest. This entire episode devoted to coronavirus, what to learn, how to learn about it, how to prepare. And adapt if you need to. And we invited for the very first time in the show's history, nearly three years, questions via social media, and they came pouring in. And as I promised at the top, we're just going to roll through those questions. So, next, also from Twitter, from Joanne, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention stated that 18,000 people in the United States died from the flu between October 1st and now. Are these deaths not important? Every single coronavirus case and death are reported ad infinitum. Is it really that much more dangerous than the flu? Thank you for any clarity. It's a really good question, and I've been hearing about this and actually writing about this too. That look, as we think about coronavirus and looking at the numbers, we are much more likely this season to get the flu. Than we are to get coronavirus, and so we should also be looking at how we can protect ourselves against the flu. And for all those who are worried about coronavirus but didn't get a flu shot themselves, well, there's something that you can do right now: is go out and get a flu shot. As an example, it's not too late. It's not too late, and, and it's a good idea. It is a very good idea. Okay. So go and and get your flu、Listen、shot. Listen carefully. It's a good idea. Go get your flu shot. That's right, and also the same measures, the same personal hygiene measures that we would be taking to protect ourselves against coronavirus would also protect us against the flu too. So good hand hygiene, good face hygiene, wash your hands more, touch your face less, also apply to both, which is which is good. Though I do want to respond to one thing,、um, one other aspect. The other aspect is the coronavirus. It is appropriate to think about it differently than we do about the flu. And the reason that it is new, and we don't yet know how bad it's going to be. Yes, if we look at the numbers now, the numbers in the U.S. and around the world are much higher for deaths from the flu and impact from the flu than for coronavirus. But coronavirus at the moment looks like it's got a higher mortality rate than the flu, and we also simply don't know what the trajectory is going to be. If coronavirus were exactly like the flu. China wouldn't have shut down their entire economy. Look, we just don't know, and therefore we shouldn't be treating it lightly. 
Excellent, excellent. So this next question comes from MB, also from Twitter. Has anyone completely recovered from this, meaning COVID-19? Also, it has been said that this virus has HIV proteins in it. What does that mean? Will this be a chronic disease if you contract it? Actually, quite the opposite. This appears to be a disease that's similar to, in fact, is um, like the common cold in some way. So let's talk about coronaviruses. There's a class of viruses called coronaviruses. And a couple of the coronaviruses are what's found in the normal cold. Um, and there are other coronaviruses, SARS and MERS, are also other types of coronaviruses too, as is COVID-19, this novel coronavirus. If you think about the normal cold variations, you do recover from it. And in fact, 80% of people who get this novel COVID-19 have mild symptoms, they don't need to go to the hospital, and they recover without additional treatment. So it is possible to recover. the described as easy cases. Well, they are cases of people who recovered. I think the problem, though, is that there are people who get very sick. And even though it seems that the people who tend to get very sick are the elderly, people with chronic medical conditions, you do also have young people, just like you do with the flu, who get very sick and who die every season. And this thing about the virus has HIV proteins, is that true? I think they're referring to the, the molecular structure of the virus. And so it's, this is why right now there are antiviral treatments that are being tested. And I'm glad that these treatment, these treatment trials are, are, are happening. But um, that's why these antiviral medications are being, are being trialed at the moment. Right. But, but this is not, um, we do not believe that this is going to be a chronic illness as HIV. Very good. I'm glad you clarified this. <clears throat> Next question from Justin Cross. This came via Instagram. Is there ever a point where we just give up on preventing the spread and just go about our business? I mean, I know it's dangerous. I'm quoting him directly. But if it keeps spreading, so what is the point? It's just like the flu. We're not ready to make that kind of determination yet. So this is, in fact, the reason why the World Health Organization has held off on the designation of pandemic. Because they've said, we're not, we're not ready to give up and say that, well, it's spreading anyway, and so let's just let it spread. We're still at the point where containment is possible. We're not ready to go to that next stage yet. And so this is why the U.S. officials and public health officials, local, state, and federal, are working so hard on identifying the outbreaks. Because if we can contain these clusters of outbreaks and stop them, then we have a chance to prevent this from becoming a pandemic. And help my audience understand what the difference is between an epidemic and a pandemic. Pandemic refers to something that is global. So important that the definition of it is how wide it's spread, not how severe is the disease. So an epidemic, an outbreak is something that's confined to a particular area. So when COVID-19 was in Wuhan, China, or even just in China, a large country, but still in one country, it would not be a pandemic because it has not been, there has not been around the world transmission. The point that it's a pandemic is when there is evidence of sustained, widespread um, community transmission, meaning person-to-person transmission in multiple areas around the world. But again, it does not refer to severity. Mm-hmm. You could have a mild illness that's a pandemic that's too. Right. That's right. But um, the World Health Organization, I know, I think it's a, by this time, it's kind of an intellectual discussion about whether it's a pandemic. 
But the reason they've held off on it is exactly to to the、uh, to the question、right. that they don't want to give up and say, "Oh, it's spread,、right. and therefore we we give up." And can, and therefore give up on containment strategies. Right. Right.、That's、they don't、right. want to do that. Last question via social media. This one from Facebook from Mark Spence. <clears throat> There has never been a vaccine for the common cold. COVID nineteen could quite possibly be mutating at the same rate as a common cold virus. What is the point of making a vaccine for COVID nineteen if it mutates, let's say every twenty four hours? That would make any immune glo- globulin and antibodies pointless and extremely expensive. It's a very good question. What we know about COVID nineteen again, it is a type of coronavirus, and coronaviruses. Do not have a high level of mutation, and so our hope is that there will not be frequent mutations, or at least there will not be frequent enough that the vaccine will be effective. Now, you look at something like influenza; there are mutations that that occur. There are different、um, there are different types of viruses that are、um, that are the cause of,、um, of of illnesses during flu season every year, and so. Every season, the type of vaccine that's produced is different, and scientists do their best to predict、um, what what will be the cause of next year's of、uh, of next year's flu season. So there is really, it, I want to highlight the importance of developing a vaccine because preventing people from getting the illness is the most important thing. A couple of things now. My questions no longer via social media.、Okay. Doesn't mean they'll be better. They just mean they'll be different. Yesterday, the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence, who's been put in charge of this by the president, said a couple of things. I want to run by you. The risk to Americans remains low, and there is no reason for Americans to buy masks. True. True. Good. So the risk to everyday Americans right now remains low. We're talking about. I mean, there have been well over a hundred cases now within the U.S. And again, I expect that number to be actually much higher once we start doing testing. But we're a country of 330 million people, and so the risk to the average everyday person remains low. But that still means that we should get prepared. And I think there is a difference. You could say the risk is low, but let's get prepared in the same way that we can get prepared for. Uh, being snowed in, or for a hurricane, it may never happen. But if it does, at least we're prepared. And what about masks? I get asked about masks all the time,、right. and so here's the answer: Everyday people should not be wearing a mask. Healthcare workers need to wear a particular type of mask called the respirator or N95 mask, which I, I will talk about. But the surgical mask, which is what we normally think about when we when we think about a mask. They're not designed to keep you from getting sick. They're designed to keep other people from getting your germs. So if you're sick yourself and you're sneezing or coughing into the mask, you're protecting other people. But that mask is not intended to keep out other people's germs, and in fact, may be worse if you wear it because it gets damp. It becomes a reservoir for germs, and you, because you're not used to it, you touch your face. And when you take off that mask, all those viruses are released onto your face. And so it it's, it seems counterintuitive, but that mask m- will not be effective. It may actually be more harmful to you in some ways too. I'm glad you said that. That's a really important point, and we're going to double back to that on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. We're in the great city of Baltimore at Village Square Cafe. From CBS News, this is the Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, Dr. Lena Wynn is our special guest,、uh, public health expert, 
former health commissioner here in Baltimore for four years uh, at that capacity on the front lines of issues like coronavirus. And we are spending the entire episode talking only about that. Uh, I want you to go back and just reiterate what you said before we went to break about the masks and how certain people need them and most of us don't. And the most of us who don't shouldn't do take put them on for very important reasons. Summarize that real quick because I think it's so important. Don't buy masks. Don't. <laughs> Don't buy masks is the most important right. takeaway. Healthcare workers do need the N95 special respiratory mask because they're performing procedures. They're in contact with individuals who are coughing on their face. And it really is important for them to have this particular mask, which, by the way, has to be specially fitted. And if you buy an N95 mask off the shelf, you probably are not going to be using it the right way. And also, it's really uncomfortable, and you'll be adjusting your face more anyway. But the surgical mask is only helpful if you are sick yourself. Because You're protecting pre- others, not protecting yourself. That's right. And so do not go out and buy masks. It actually puts a drain on the entire system and then could prevent healthcare workers from getting these masks that they uh, really need. Uh, how about do-it-yourself Purell? There's all sorts of stuff on the internet about, oh, you take rubbing alcohol and you mix it with aloe vera and suddenly you've got your own batch of Purell. Good you, idea, bad idea? Yeah, I don't know that Do I would recommend that. you want to be a home that? chemist for this? <laughs> I think it's much better to focus on the basics, which is to have soap, soap and water. Soap, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's been around for a while. You might have read about it. Soap. It comes soap. in bars. Lots of other things. That's right. And so And, and what's magical, simple, but, <laughs> and I'm not trying to be glib, but what is magical about this 20-second thing? On the washing of your hands. You just need time. I time. mean, you think what, about... I, I, what, what's the benefit of the time? It, that's the time that it takes to get all the germs off of your hands. And you think about you, watching medical shows when surgeons are surgery, going right. to surgery, right? They sing, they have all these mantras for a certain amount of time that they're scrubbing. That time really matters. It's not dopey. It really matters. It makes a qualitative difference yes. in your own health if you just... Run a little bit of soap and water over your hands or whether you vigorously wash your hands. That's exactly right. Something that simple makes a huge difference. And numerically, in this atmosphere where we're trying to be proactive and protective of ourselves and our family and our friends, five times a day? More than that? Washing your hands? Yes. A lot more than five times a day. Okay, a lot more than that. And because you can't stop yourself from touching other things. Right. I mean, you have to just... When I walked into this building... I opened a door. Right. Um, I got out of an elevator before. I touched my car door. I'm touching these forks. And, I mean, you're not going to stop the rest of your life. Right. But the key is, before you touch your face, Mm -hmm. you need to wash your hands. So wash them constantly. Wash them constantly. Uh, There's a story in the New York Times today about pets. Can we make our pet sick or can our pet make us sick with this particular virus? Extremely unlikely. There's okay. no documentation of that. And that type of human to animal tra- transmission with your pets, very it's extremely unlikely that that, that that will happen. Currency. In France, they've taken some precautions about paper money. I know uh, producers uh, of a certain age, millennials, who don't even want to touch cash ever, coronavirus or not. Is there any currency issue, money, as part of this? I mean, I think money is in the same category as any surface. During the SARS epidemic, one doorknob turned out to be a, um, a, a source of a, a potential infection for a number of people. And so it's not necessarily that money is the problem. It's that 
all these things that exchange hands are the problem. And again, the solution to that isn't no more money or no more doorknobs. The solution to that is washing your hands. Right. So, to put a fine point on it, ladies and gentlemen, it's hands, not the currency. That's right. That's, that's right. That's the issue. That's right. Not the problem, because we can't get rid of hands, and we're not going to. Just got to wash them. That's right. And somebody was asking me um, earlier about libraries. Should they stop going to libraries and stop reading? I mean, that's that's not the answer. The answer is washing your hands and not touching your face. Right. And thinking about, I'm at home. Are there things I should be doing to disinfect things that I don't typically disinfect? Or is should I think of myself as essentially, when I'm at home, it's a protected and safe space? Well, I don't know who's at home with you, right. but you might be exposed you to. You really don't want to know. It's a crazy I mean, menagerie I, of, no. I, I mean, I, I myself, I'll tell you, I have a toddler. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old. He touches a lot of things. And um, I don't think of my home as a germ-free area because it's certainly not. And we also have friends coming over with their kids on play dates, and I'm not going to stop that. But again, I think it's really important not only that I wash my hands, but that I wash my toddler's hands. I mean, I'm also eight and a half months pregnant. Right. And even though for this particular illness, for COVID-19, it doesn't appear so far that pregnant women are particularly susceptible. Pregnant people just in general are immunosuppressed. And I will be taking additional precautions as a result of that, too. So one of the things that has the financial markets freaked out is quarantines mm-hmm. and the idea of social mobility either stopping or being restricted. Are we heading in that direction, do you think? Yes. We've seen this happen already in other countries. I mean, what China did was unprecedented and, and quite draconian. And I've read some studies that are now saying that was the right thing to do. It unquestionably, That level of intense, yep. mm-hmm. no questions asked intervention and shutting down of, of human mobility might have been exactly the right thing. And it did work. I mean, the number of cases, of new cases, the number of deaths in China has been declining while cases in other places is now increasing. We know that these methods work, although the extent to which they can be enforced in other countries that don't have authoritarian regimes seems unlikely because they are extremely restrictive and had huge impacts on the economy. But voluntary social distancing measures and in general social distancing measures are now being implemented in the U.S. I mean, we're seeing schools being closed down. I mean, kids are, again, are, are reservoirs for, for germs, and right. this does make sense. Um, but also mass gatherings are, are being canceled. They're being, most, most of them are being voluntarily canceled. Um, but I would expect to see more, um, more guidelines being put out around this. And there could be additional voluntary um, social distancing measures for individuals. For example, individuals who may be immune compromised, who are older, may choose to avoid certain gatherings. So uh, social distancing, that doesn't happen on airplanes. It doesn't happen in train cars. It doesn't happen in buses. That is social gathering. We're right there. Is this something that we will see some restrictions on or some suggestions about? Well, I think that individuals can follow suggestions now already when um, when they're on um, when they're in public tran- transportation. Although I actually don't think that those are necessarily the 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 venues that I would be the most concerned. Okay, about. you would not. Okay, good. I mean, you're around a certain number of people. 
but they tend to be stationary for that time. I mean, if if I'm getting on the Amtrak to go a couple of hours, I might be exposed to six or seven other people, but not necessarily to hundreds of people. Like you would be at a sporting event or something like that. That's right, or a concert or a rally or something. And so I do think that we can safeguard ourselves and and just be careful. And again, washing our hands, touching our face less, all important precautions. That's that's the voice of Dr. Lena Wynn, our special guest here in Baltimore. For our radio audience, this is the end of this episode of The Takeout. For those of you on CBSN and our podcast platform, stay tuned for The Takeout Outtake Especial. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Welcome to the great city of Baltimore, Charm City, the city that reads. We're here because our special guest, Dr. Lena Wynn, lives here in Baltimore, former health commissioner here in Baltimore. She's got a long list, checker bio, of distinguished accomplishments. She is currently, uh, what is your position at the George Washington University? I'm a visiting professor of health policy and management in the School of Public Health, and I'm also a distinguished fellow with the Fitzhugh Mullen Institute for Health Workforce Equity. Also, another incredibly fun fact about Dr. Lena Wynn. Born in Shanghai, China, Mm -hmm. emigrated to the United States when you were eight, I believe. Okay, so she arrived in the United States at age eight. At age 13, you did what? I entered college at California State University in Los Angeles. Yeah. So let's just pause and savor that for a second. I entered college at age 13, and by age 18, you had accomplished what? I was I was starting medical school. Yeah, no, no, no. Don't skip over the... <laughs> so, I don't know what, what the, you mean. <laughs> graduated, okay. summa cum laude, biochemistry at age 18. Do I have that correct? That's correct. See, there you go, folks. Something uh, not only did I not contemplate, would not have been able to accomplish had I contemplated it. So that's among the many impressive aspects of Dr. Lena Wynn's medical career. That's why she's here, and we're talking about coronavirus and really nothing else. Um, I want to read to you something that appeared in the newspaper today. This is a Thursday, folks. Uh, Thursday's edition of the New York Times, and this was said by a gentleman named Dr. Uh, John Yarmuth, direct Democrat from Kentucky, member of the House. We are potentially facing a public health crisis like we haven't seen in years, and from everything I've seen, the president doesn't get that. I will save the president stuff for later. Facing a public health crisis like we haven't seen in years. True, not true, alarmist, or cautionary in a constructive way. Look, I always think that we should act out of an abundance of caution and that it's a good idea for us to prepare for the worst. I mean, I'm in Yardoc. We always think about the worst case scenario. A patient may be coming in, it looks fine, but what happens if they deteriorate? What is the worst thing that could happen? Mm-hmm. And I do think it's possible that this could be a type of situation that we have not seen for many years. Although it's not something that we haven't prepared for or thought about. Public health experts, this is the work that we do. When I was a local public health official here in Baltimore, we prepared our pandemic response plans. Working in the ER, we always had surge plans for what happens if we have situations like this. And this is the work that local frontline people do every single day to prepare. And there's been commentary about, or questions certainly raised about uh, a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jake, I want you to have this ready. This is uh, soundbite number one. 
someone who's been on this show before, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, we had a long conversation about two years ago about the common cold and flu and all the things about it. He's a phenomenally informed and very soundbite friendly. And I don't mean that as an insult to a doctor. He just knows how to explain all of this vast knowledge that he has. And he talked about this idea about the process for a vaccine. Go ahead, Jake, play that. What is paramount is safety and whether or not it works. So we'll do a phase one trial. We'll do it in a number of our centers, including our center at the NIH. That will take about three to four months. And then if successful, which I believe it will be, there's no reason to believe it won't be safe. We'll go into what's called a phase two trial. The phase one trial is 45 individuals. Phase two trials are hundreds, if not a couple of thousand individuals. It would take then about a year to a year and a half to be fully confident that we would have a vaccine that would be able to protect the American people. The reality of vaccinology means this is not going to be something we're going to have tomorrow. All true. Absolutely. And that's something we just need to wrap our minds around. You can't have, add water, get vaccine. Whenever we're faced with a novel pathogen, a novel disease, meaning new. We think, meaning new, we think about prevention and we think about treatment. For a vaccine would prevent someone from getting the illness, and so it is really good for us to focus on developing it. But we also know that it's going to take, as you heard from Dr. Fauci, at least a year to a year and a half to develop. In the meantime, there are treatments that are undergoing clinical trials already because there are existing antivirals, and I'm glad that we can focus on that. But we still have to think about how can we prevent people if if the pharmaceutical interventions, if the vaccine is not what we can count on in the near future, what else can we do? And that's when those other measures like personal hygiene and social distancing and outbreak and trying to contain an outbreak, why those types of preventive public health measures are so important. If you feel sick, should you go to work? depends on what kind of sickness. I mean, if you are coming down with fever, cough, runny nose, you should not be going to work because, not, and not Period. just because of this coronavirus, is not, this right. is just in general because you don't want to be spreading it to other people. Right. But, it, but in this atmosphere, this is not a uh, coin flip. If you're feeling sick and you're coming down with something, you should stay home. Stay home. Full stay stop. out of school. I do recognize how challenging this yes. issue is for many people who don't have paid sick leave in our country. Um, and of course, those who are disproportionately affected by these, by our lack of a safety net are those who already face the greatest barriers to care. You saw that in living color here in Baltimore. Very much so. Very much so. As the health commissioner here. Yes. We saw this with Poor every... populations mm -hmm. are stressed all the time. That's right. Daily existence is stressful if That's you're poor. Right. That's just a fact. And these added stressors make life even more difficult. And right here in our city, we have neighborhoods just a few miles apart where the life expectancy differs by 20 years. And it's the same. It, the map of Baltimore is a map of health disparities. And when you get any Which are often illness, synonymous with income disparities. Absolutely. And educational disparities and housing disparities. And just all these issues are interrelated. But that's why the public policy component is pretty important, too. How are we going to pay for all these tests that people should be getting? How should we be getting treatment? What do we do when we say, well, we may have a good policy about school closures, but what about low-income children like in Baltimore who depend on their school meal as maybe their only meals of the day? Right. Now, we frequently, almost universally, describe this portion of the program as fun and games. Now, 
let's be honest. Coronavirus, COVID-19 <laughs> doesn't fall neatly into the fun and games category, but we've had a really good and I hope informative discussion about that. But you got to get the three threshold questions that we ask every single guest on this program because our audience loves the answers. So in no particular order, most influential book in your life, one of your favorite movies or your all-time favorite movie, and if you're on a long flight or a long drive, Dr. Lena Wen, what kind of music, artist or genre are you most likely to listen to? Okay, so um, most influential book, President Bill Clinton's book, My Life. Um, I read the book and decided that I was, I wanted to also um, apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. I came from a background as an immigrant. I mean, my parents and I came to this country with $40. We came on political asylum, and I didn't know how I could possibly achieve my dreams. And I read his book and thought, he could do it. Road <laughs> Scholar. Can, and you and became I, a Road Scholar at Oxford. I, I did. And it, was, and it was a transformative experience. And it was also how I knew that I could pursue my wildest dreams of becoming a doctor and serving my community. Fantastic. Um, favorite movie? I or just, one of your favorite movies? I love the Godfather series. <laughs> so. Who doesn't? I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Since you mentioned that, uh, please indulge me this five-second thing. Godfather 3 gets a lot of grief. Most people hate Godfather 3. I understand why. It has flaws. But it's not as terrible as people describe it as. It's not in the league of 1 and 2, obviously. But it's still a solid 7.5 in my opinion. Yeah, I think so too. I like 2 the best. But. 2 is the best. 2 is by far the best. But 3 gets so much grief that I think is in, in some measure undeserved. Uh, favorite kind of music? Uh, Gen- artist or genre? I love dance music. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Latin dance and ballroom dance. So anything that makes me want to dance. And uh, do you play that for your son? And will you play that for your daughter? Sure, absolutely. And they get out and dance, put on their dance shoes? <laughs> I would love that. Very good. Dr. Lena Wynn, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope our audience has appreciated our focus on this. Hope you take something from it. Bookmark this one. You're going to go back to this because it's going to be helpful not just this week, but in the weeks ahead. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. 
Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.